The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Hey everyone, it's Michelle Williams, and I love being able to share my story with you on my podcast, Checking In with Michelle Williams, where my guests and I, we get real as we share the ups and downs of our mental health journeys, and I'd love for you to join me. Hey, it's going to be your church and your turn up. So listen to Checking In with Michelle Williams every Tuesday, a part of the Black Effect on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Pharrell on the bench in the biggest way possible. Hanging out the bad seat, broken ate a bad, up over the bad attitude, hanging around a bunch of bad, utter bad taste, bad luck, bad dude, bad bread, bad attention, bad vibes. Here we sit with another exciting episode of Pharrell on the Bench. And today, we finally tap into the nerve center of the church. Father Sean, my priest and my next door neighbor. So first of all, the Pharrell Palatial, people know all about it, but maybe they've heard rumors, but it's true. I live next door to the rectory where Father Sean presides with his two friends, Father Sofridis, who no one can understand a word he says in the church, and then Felix, the hospital chaplain. So he goes over to the hospital when people are dying, and he tells them and their family the last rites, and then sometimes he'll save them, and sometimes he'll give them encouragement, and sometimes he'll make them feel better, and sometimes they'll find God while they're there. And then sometimes God will change their course of their illness. One day they're dying. The next day they're feeling fantastic and playing tennis all because of Father Felix. So, Sean, welcome to the Pharrell on a Bench podcast. Hey, Scott. Hey, everyone. So wonderful to be here. We're sat outside on my deck with Scott. We're sat around the table. We're doing our social distancing six feet away. Scott's got his arm reaching out with a microphone to me. He's a great neighbor, a great guy. He is a practicing Catholic, if you didn't know that. He's the life and soul of the party. In fact, one time I forgot to show up for Mass, and Scott was there, and he took over the show. He did the reading, he told some jokes, gave people the golf scores, and in fact, I think people liked him more than they liked me. I think that that was a great day, because I think that on that occasion, Sean, I think the parish... They finally realized my second calling in life, that I have the potential when I am finally fired from television and radio, that I will become a priest. I think you should. You certainly have a vocation as a preacher. You're able to reach out to people to communicate. And you are a very spiritual guy. You are. Despite everything that's on the surface, you have a good soul that's able to reach other people. Let's go back in time, Sean. A couple ways here. First of all, we're going to go back to my youth, where my father used to force me to go to church. And then he would force me to go to Campus Crusade for Christ conventions in the Rocky Mountains in Estes Park, Colorado. 
Now, I, as you know, Sean, at the time was a troublemaking youth, and I was there chasing girls, and I clearly was not there to read the scripture, but my father forced me to go to get some wholesomeness in my life and to find God, and I was able to find multiple girls to defer from that plan and cause trouble in the Rocky Mountains high in the altitude. This was not good because I learned nothing and all I did was continue in my troublemaking ways. Later in life, I would find that mass would save me from all these indiscretions. What do you think it is about young kids where you're unable to get them to follow the right path? I think that your experience is pretty much like mine and a lot of youth. I mean, God has a time for each one of us he loves each one of us exactly the way that we are and we all got to find our own way through life and usually this way always ends up sooner or later back to him in my youth i was a cradle catholic had to go to church every sunday with my family i'm from wales we're gonna get into the wales thing let's save the wales thing for later let's stay focused on how you as a priest rides a Harley and you have gone on many motorcycle rides to save people's lives but when you were a kid did your dad mind force you to go to church or did you go willingly we as kids you go willingly you love it is great then when you become a teenager you suddenly distance yourself from this especially out of high school none of your friends are going I drifted away also I no longer went it seemed like irrelevant to me this is just for a bunch of old ladies who've got nothing better to do and then when I was in college I found myself being invited by a group of non-catholic Christians these kids they were very active in their faith and I was surprised they were so lit on fire so like born again Christians as opposed to the Catholic Exactly. Born-again Christians. And they were inviting me to go and do stuff with them. And it kind of raised questions in me about the Catholic faith and what do we believe and why do we believe what we believe, what's different to them. And it was kind of a beginning of a journey to begin to question my faith and eventually then to be able to go back to the church and find something which was able to answer the emptiness which I had inside of me. It's a lot like the empty bottle of Jameson. When the bottle runs out of Jameson, at the bottom of the bottle is despair, loneliness, and hopelessness. And you wanted to, before the bottle was empty, find the right chosen way. So you were able to be lured back to the church, the right church, the Catholic church, as opposed to these Christians trying to sway your opinions and follow them. No, not at all. I was really impressed with these people. They were non-Catholic Christians. So why didn't you go with them? And you went back to the Catholic Church like your childhood. Because that's what my dad tried to make me do. Go with the Campus Crusade kids instead of the Catholics that I was raised as. Well, I think deep down, we go to the root. We're all the same. I mean, there are differences in our creed, in our profession of faith. But all these things in the end are nonsense. I remember as a kid growing up, seeing the nightly bombings in Northern Ireland on the news. I was a kid. I remember I asked my dad once, what's going on? Who's bombing who? And he said, well, these are the IRA. They're bombing the Orangemen, the Protestants. I said, well, who are the IRA? Well, they're the Catholics. 
Are you crazy? But we're Catholics. Why are they doing that if they're Catholics? They're blowing up people. It's all nonsense. No, now stop. There's so many ways we're going to go here, Sean. This is awesome. I have to stay focused here for a second. So now what you're saying to me is you're blaming my mother-in-law, Kathy, and all of her friends in the IRA, Jerry Kelly and the rest of them, for ruining the world with all of their bombs and car bombs and all of their kneecapping and everything else. And they were still going to church and praising God at the time that they were having none of these Protestants and none of their nonsense. And now your father has told you that it's the IRA's fault. Everything's their fault. They blame those people from Belfast and my great mother-in-law sitting in that house right now, sipping on her fifth bottle of wine since yesterday, having a time of her life, spending this time of pandemic confusion with her daughter and her grandchildren, a wonderful family bonding time for her. Everyone else is fearing for their lives and Kathy O is turning it into a family unit time and enjoying her wine and her whiskey. And your father has blamed these fine people for all the problems in the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because in the name of religion, we can do crazy stuff. In the name of God, in the end, it's all baloney. It's all hogwash. If we don't love one another, if we don't reach out to one another, if we don't care, what does it matter? You can go to mass, you can go to church. When I was in the seminary, there's a thing called the admissio, where you receive the black shirt. The black shirt that I'm wearing right now, Scott, with my white collar. And in the morning, we received this admissio, all my classmates and all the other seminarians. Oh, this looks great. You're wonderful. And there was an old administrator in the seminary. He was a retired banker from Rome, Corrado. And he looked at me and rolled his eyes. And he said to me in Italian, it's not the habit that makes the monk. Can you say it in Italian? Do you remember what he said to you? Can you do it? He said to me, non è el abito che fa il monaco, which means... Who the hell do you think you are? Now because you're wearing a black shirt, you think you're somebody special? Get off your high horse. And he was right. He put me in my place. It's not the outward appearance, it's what's inside of us. God loves us, each one of us, whether we go to church or we don't go to church. He loves each one of us exactly the way that we are. Explain this to me, Sean. There's so many questions. You know, in the hierarchy of the Catholic Church in Rome, like where Pope Francis is chilling out. He's got his little red shoes. He's got his little white hat. And he opens up the doors to the big giant square and millions show up to watch him preach from the window. What is the difference between his, he's all white and, and styling with the red shoes and then all the cardinals are draped in red. And then you're in black with your white little priest tag or whatever the hell you call it. Why is it that they got the different levels of like the white, the red, and then the black? Well, people think the church is like a hierarchy. At the top of the triangle, you got the pope, then you got the cardinals, the archbishops, the bishops, then the priests, and then all, all the rest of you slobs down the bottom like the rest of the people. But in fact, the triangle is inverted. Uh, the one at the bottom is the Pope, and then the Cardinals, then the and at the top is the people of God. The Pope is called to be the servant of the servants of God. He's there not to be on top of the totem pole. But that's exactly what he is. Like, there's no one on the face of the earth that doesn't believe that the Pope is the baddest man on the planet in terms of power, and you're telling me that he's in the basement groveling with the snakes?
Absolutely, because he, I mean, for us in the Catholic Church, we, we believe he is the successor of St. Peter. He is the vicar of Christ, like Christ's representative on the earth. And as a representative of Christ, he's called to be a servant. Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve. We believe that as Catholics. Not that we believe that we're more important or better than anyone else. The church is just there to do a service for everyone. If we encounter the love of God, if I encounter the love of God in my life, I'm called to be able to share that, to give that to other people. So the Pope is like the baddest dude on the face of the planet. He's there. But actually, his role, we believe, is like Jesus Christ speaking, as he speaks through each one of us. But he speaks through, we believe, the Pope, the successor of Peter, that's why people flock to hear him to speak. Listen, they flock to hear you speak. And then I love Father Sofridis, but when he speaks, I run because I have no idea what he's saying. Father Sofridis is from Tanzania. He came with me. We arrived in the States together 30 years ago from a vocational meeting in Italy where we were chosen by lottery to go to any country. We could have ended up in Japan or South America, Europe. By lottery, we were chosen to come to the States. We arrived here together. Uh, he's a great person. You know, he has a great soul. The Holy Spirit translates everything, uh, even if we don't understand. All right, so when you came with him from Italy, like, so I have to ask this question. So when you're in Italy, like, you're, like, literally at, at in Rome, and then, right, where all this stuff happens, where the Pope lives... They sequester you, and then they choose where you're going to go. They tell you where you're going to go. And then you and Father Sofridis have been together and known each other and have been friends ever since for 30 years. It's just like literally a lottery, like the, uh, like almost like the uh, Powerball. It's like, it's like the NBA lottery. You got chosen. Both of you got chosen to go to the same place. How is that possible? There were 800 of us from all over the world in this meeting, which was held on the Adriatic coast of Italy, a place called Porto San Giorgio. And this meeting was being run not by a priest, by a layman called Kiko Aguello from Spain. And the 800 of us were there somehow trying to discern the vocation. I just graduated college in the UK. I was thinking of maybe God's calling me to, to be a priest. We were in this meeting, 800 of us, and we were invited um, to have an experience that Jesus did in the gospel. He said Jesus didn't have any seminaries, didn't form the disciples. He just sent them out with nothing. Don't take any money, don't take any bags, spare tunic, just go and announce the kingdom of God. So we were first drawn by lottery, two by two, and then to a country by lottery. And we were invited to go for 10 days, and just to go and give our experience to the priest. So I was chosen by lottery with a guy from India, uh, Anthony, who was from Bombay, Mumbai, and we were sent to Ireland, to Dublin. So 800 of us, there were 400 teams sent all over Europe to the States for 10 days with nothing. We were given a return ticket. And I went to Dublin with this guy, Anthony, from India, who I'd never met before. He was a lot older than me. And we were invited to go and visit the priests and give our experience and to announce the love of God to them. So we did this for 10 days, and that was a confirmation for me of the calling, the vocation. Uh, we get to Dublin, and the little money we had in our pocket, we saw a bum on the bench in the park. We gave him the money that we had, and he was so happy. He ran off to buy cigarettes and whiskey, I guess. And of course he did. Yeah, and then we, we walked into the town, and we come to the first church we could find, and I could see the priest through the window, and I said to Anthony, so what should we do? 
I don't know what we should do. He said, well, I think we should do what they told us, what the gospel says. We just announce the love of God is with you. Peace be with you. I said, okay, let's try that. We rang the doorbell and this priest comes out, this huge, like six foot seven Irish priest. And we said to him, peace be with you, Father. We've come to announce the kingdom of God is very close to you and that God loves you. And he said to us, what did you say? And we repeated it. He got so angry. He said, do you know who the hell I am? How dare you say that? I'm the freaking priest. He got fuming. He practically kicked our asses down the path and threw us out onto the street. And don't come back. I'll call the cops on you. Why did he do that? What's wrong with him? Honestly, you can't even make this stuff up. You know what? I wanted to cry. I said, I want to go home. I want my mommy. And Anthony said to me, that was very good. That was, I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, Jesus saved the world by being rejected. He said, and you and I are no better than that guy. He said to me, if one day you get ordained a priest and you're in your rectory and two snotty-nosed ragamuffins come and ring your doorbell and they say to you what we just said to him, what be your reaction? Would you invite them in? Would you ask them if they want something to eat, if they've got a place to stay? No. He said, we should accept this rejection and pray for him, and pray for him, and for his ministry. For his... So we walked away. Anthony took out the rosary. We began to pray the rosary. And I felt a peace I'd never experienced before. I couldn't explain it. We slept that night. We found some cardboard. We slept downtown Dublin behind some buildings. The cops came and woke us up 3 o'clock in the morning. Who are you? What are you doing here? And we told them. And the cops said, you know, what you're doing is very good. You should go to the youth of this city, because the youth are really lost. We spent that week... Um, we slept in a homeless shelter many nights. There was a gang of car thieves sleeping in the homeless shelter. And when they saw us, they wanted to know who we are. We're like two strangers. They wanted to pray the rosary with us, an evening prayer. In the morning, we'd go off visiting priests. They'd go off stealing cars. In the night, they'd come back and say, it worked. We stole some great cars today. Let's pray the rosary. They thought that the, uh, the prayers that you were having with them, like fireside chats, were helping them uh, succeed in their thievery. And, and then they felt that the prayer were actually taking them up from like a Ford or a Pinto up to, uh, right, right. They started stealing Jags and Mercedes. And Jesus said, the prostitutes and tax collectors will enter the kingdom of heaven before you. Uh, that these, the, these kids, um, they welcomed us. They welcomed us. They shared their food with us. The priest, and, and did you ever see the mean, nasty, six foot seven power forward priest again? We never saw him again. We saw a lot of other priests. Most of them slammed the door in our face. Most of them were angry. I don't understand that. Is there some sort of jealousy or that they felt that you were on their turf? Looking at it now, because I'm a priest now. I've been ordained 20 years. And it's very easy as a priest to fall into the clericalism or you become a professional or you become a know-it-all. And for someone to come and like announce the gospel to you, and to call you to sincerity and call you to the truth. It's much easier to hide behind my collar and defend myself and start shooting people, figuratively speaking. So I can understand where these priests were coming from. But also the mission that we were doing when we got back to Italy after 10 days, we all shared experiences and we really saw the miracles, even through the rejection and not to judge these priests, not to condemn them. Are you ready for the nation's first and only free 24-hour network dedicated to you, the betting and fantasy sports enthusiast? SportsGrid will provide you with real-time content, statistics, and gaming intelligence unlike anything you've ever seen before. 
Located both in the heart of New York City and inside the FanDuel Sportsbook at the Meadowlands, SportsGrid is live 18 hours a day. Here to serve you, the fanatic. This is SportsGrid. Get on the grid. Have you written a book and need some insight into what comes next? Or are you passionate about cooking and want to know how to make it your career? Or maybe you just want to hear insider stories about the entertainment industry. Either way, we've got you covered with the Two Guys from Hollywood podcast. I'm Alan Nevins, a literary agent and talent manager. And I'm Joey Santos, a columnist and celebrity chef. And on our podcast, Two Guys from Hollywood, we bring our expertise to the table with, of course, delicious cocktails and all kinds of recipes for you to try at home. So grab a drink and join us. We've got a wide range of celebrity guests and Hollywood insiders to discuss pop culture, publishing, and entertainment. And we'll provide you with an unfiltered and sometimes brutally honest show about Hollywood. As we like to say, we don't dish, we serve. Listen and follow Two Guys from Hollywood on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll talk at you soon. That, that the goal was all along they knew that by sending you out all of the potential priests to go into the seminary to learn and experience exactly what happened to you happens to a lot of let's say if you will use and yins and guys that do what you do that they all have to find that way and that path the hard way it's no joke that they're going to be rejected they're going to be mocked they're going to be thrown to the wolves if you will do you think that they know all along in the church in rome that that's what's going to happen to you at the beginning and you were how old experiencing this kind of treatment and then it thickened your skin like a lizard. It's almost like what Jesus went through, like you had said before. Anthony had said, this is exactly what Jesus went through. Do you think that's what they intended all along? They knew that you were going to go through this. Absolutely. I think so. I was in my early 20s. I just graduated college. The guy who was running this whole shindig, the whole retreats, this meeting, this uh, Kiko, this Spaniard, he said, we're sent out like lambs amongst wolves as Jesus and you will be rejected you will have the door slammed in your face when you have nowhere to lay your head Christ will be your pillow when you have nothing to eat Christ will be your food when you feel rejected and scorn you will see that he'll be his consolation and I think I mean for me this was a fundamental experience without it I would have never entered the seminary you think that the kids the way they like even the car thieves and the kids and the youth in Dublin the way they were suffering and that you had reached them and got through to them and that it fulfilled you enough your cup that you knew that your future was doing this that you were going to be a priest no matter what like that moment in time was the difference for you in your life that was a key moment a definitive moment in my life i knew right then that the vocation was confirmed in me and i felt called to be a priest absolutely yes what did your parents think? Let's go back to Wales. When you grow up in Wales, let's go through that. As a kid, you know, the whole rugby thing. They love to drink and they're crazy there. Let's not kid ourselves. They're nuts. And then they pretty much golf, drink, smoke, and watch soccer and rugby. Isn't the father figure the controlling one in the power and pecking order of things? What's the family structure like when you're growing up as a kid in Wales? Yeah, all of that. When I grew up, tight-knit families, very close families, tons of cousins and aunts and uncles running around all the place. It's very patriarchal, like the man is the man. 
My parents, we grew up, rugby was a national religion, like the Welsh rugby team and all of that. And more than soccer. More than soccer. I mean, we love soccer too. I grew up supporting Liverpool. And then Ryan Giggs' grandmother lived next door to my grandmother, so I became a Man U supporter. How do you go from Liverpool to Man U? So I have a Liverpool sweater, and I have a Man U blanket that goes over Gunner's bed. Gunner's a Man U fan. I have a Liverpool jersey. But you can't possibly like both of them without having someone punch you in the face. That's true, because Ryan Giggs, who played for Man U, his grandmother lived next door to my grandmother. So then I wasn't a huge soccer fan anyway. I mean, rugby was my bread and butter. But then I switched to Man U. In fact, it was funny. Here a few years ago in New Jersey, one of my other parishes, a bunch of the guys there, they're all Spanish guys. They wanted to go see Man U play Juventus. So we went to Giant Stadium to see the game, 60,000 fans. And I, like an idiot, I put on a Leeds Leeds United shirt. I had this Leeds shirt I used to wear when I went cycling. I know what Leeds is. And Man U and Leeds hate each other. Well, at this game, there were probably 60,000 expats all wearing red for Man U to watch them play Juventus. I nearly got lynched in the parking lot. So they gave you the business. Oh, definitely. And what did you do? Because you're the nicest guy ever. You are, without a doubt, within, I'd say, a thousand miles of here. No one's nicer than Father Sean. You're the nicest human being I've ever met in my life. And what do you do when you go to MetLife Stadium and there's 60,000 people giving you the finger, spitting toward you and calling you all kinds of profane names? Let me guess, you just smile and wave at them and say, bless you or I love you. How did you handle all the venom? I don't know about being nice. I'm a sinner like everyone else. I've seen the love of God. What I did in that occasion was I went to the concession stand bought a Man U shirt and put it on over top of the Leeds one. So that was the end of that problem. Explain rugby to me, because I'll be in Vegas and they'll have all the rugby on in the sports book, and I'm watching. Any other time, I wouldn't watch rugby. My house, if rugby were on right now, I would not watch it. But when I'm in Vegas, for some reason, I see like three or four rugby games going on at once, and I've always wondered the fascination. And now I get how they kick the ball through the uprights. This is a lot like field goals in the NFL. But what I don't understand is when they have their little scrum and they they're all in there like 10 or 12 of them together and they're mashing each other in the head and sculling each other and headbutting each other and then they what drop the ball on the ground and one guy reaches in the woods and grabs it with all those arms and legs and it's like a challenge to be the man to get the ball because can anyone reach in there and get it what is the rules of not having your arm broken off like you would have your arm literally torn off and your head and headbutts and having your head basically in some guy's ass. <laughs> right. There are two codes of rugby. Rugby league and rugby union. Rugby league, 13 aside. Rugby union, 15 aside. Traditionally, rugby league, they were the professionals, like the paid guys. Rugby union, which is what I grew up with, these were working guys, working class men, like uh, Gaelic football. If you go to Ireland, the Gaelic football, County Clare, there's like a butcher, a mailman, a truck driver, but they play. So that was rugby union, 15 aside. Basically, it's American football without any protection, no helmet, no pants, no nothing. Unlike American football, where the quarterback can throw the ball forward, in rugby, you can only pass the ball behind you laterally. You cannot 
throw it forward to somebody. The aim of the game, like football, uh, is a touchdown. The equivalent in rugby is a try. You need to get the ball over the line and actually ground it. How many points to run it over the line and dive over the line as opposed to kicking it through the upright? Equivalent of a touchdown, a try, you get across the line, that's five points. Then, after scoring the try, American touchdown, you can try for a conversion. The ball is placed on the field perpendicular to where the ball went across the line and the place kicker tries to kick that ball through the uprights. If he does that, it's another two points. Then you can get a field penalty for an infraction anywhere on the field and you can take a pot at going through the uprights, kicking the ball. If you kick a penalty, that's three points. Is every guy on both teams capable of kicking the ball like a kicker is in the NFL? In the NFL, they have one kicker and one punter. But in rugby, it seems to me that every guy knows how to kick. Not necessarily. In rugby, you've got eight guys who are the heavy hitters, the forwards, and you've got seven guys who are in the backs, the faster guys. There's usually one or two designated kickers, but not everyone is able to do that. No. So in your town where you grew up in Wales, they like rugby and they kind of like soccer. Do they also love golf as much as those others? Yeah, golf is huge over there too. I mean, Wales is pretty much like Ireland, like rolling green hills, great golf courses. I mean, personally, I never grew up playing golf. When we were like 12 years old, we got a hold of some golf clubs. I whacked a ball through some neighbor's window. That was the end of it. That was the end of it. When dads dealt with you, like when I was a kid, I threw eggs at a house. The family was on vacation. We didn't like them. So we egged the house and we Fleischmann margarine the house. So it had aluminum siding. My house was white, your house is blue. By the time we were done with the butter on the entire house and in the 90 degree summer heat, the butter melted and turned their house blue. So when the family came home and realized their house was destroyed, they were gonna get to the bottom of it. The kid that I did it with, he ended up breaking. I never broke. When my dad said to me, did you do it? I kept lying through my teeth. I never had anything to do it. I don't even know what you're talking about. The other kid knocked me out and broke. So my dad beat me with a fraternity paddle until my ass literally had giant red bloody sores on my ass cheeks. When you were a kid in Wales and you hit a golf ball through the neighbor's window, were you beaten with a paddle? As kids, my mother had the shillelagh or the leg of the chair. That's what she threatened us with. And she'd just say, I'm going to get the shillelagh, and we'd run. And one morning she said, I'm going to get the shillelagh. None of us moved. And then she went to get it, and it was gone. I think I was about six years old. And apparently the neighbor told her, I'd woken up one morning when I knew the trash men were coming, the dustbin men, and I threw that thing out in the trash. But That's a really nice move. And save that story. I just want to tell you, my mother had the same kind of tool, but it was a different kind of a weapon. She used a meat tenderizer on our legs. <laughs> now, when I was a teenager, we moved house. My dad wanted to put a rotary line, like a clothes line to dry the clothes in the backyard. He says to me and my cousin, see if you can find a piece of pipe. There was a building site. They were building all these houses. We went over to the building site. We couldn't find any pipe, so we went into a brand new house that had just been built. We climbed in through the window, and we saw all this beautiful copper piping that hadn't just been, hadn't been closed behind the sheetrock. So we started, we said, this would be good. This is the right size. We started yanking on this thing. We destroyed the whole house. We pulled this copper pipe out, went up through the ceiling. We ruined the house. So what happened? We snapped off this piece of pipe, brought it back to my dad. He said, oh, that's great. Where did you get it from? The building site. 
End of story. Two weeks later, I remember, I was in standard two. I was like eight years old. My dad shows up, and we're in the class with Sister Teresa. And my dad's standing at the door, and the kid next to me says, Hey, your dad is here. And I look up. Uh-oh. The nun says, Sean, pack your books. You're going home. I thought, great. So I'm, we're going to the beach. Or we're going to go do something. Yeah, so, you're going to go to the beach, all right. <laughs> all the kids were jealous. I get out. And as soon as I get out, I knew, oh, my God, this is not good. My dad, he looked pissed. So what did he do to you? Nothing. He just said, get in the car. And he said to me, where did you get that pipe? I began to cry. I began to, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Spilled. That was the one. You leaked like a ship. I leaked like a ship, Scott. I didn't have your fortitude. I couldn't hold out. I'm really disappointed, Sean. And let me ask you the rest of that, I don't even want to hear about because you leaked. I had the balls to just maintain the lie all the way to the limit. I took it. And then I took my beating like a man. All right, so I have to ask you some serious questions, Sean. Now, with the Pharrell-demic going on, the virus is spread. People are scared. There's fear. There's anxiety. There's depression. People are confused. They're lonely. There's people that are trapped and helpless. And the key to, I think, the entire story here is that you had 40 priests that were trapped in an area in New Jersey, and they had been quarantined by the government because they had been on a mission and had been exposed. So they got sent to a quarantine and they were all going to have to stay there for 14 days at least with no touching the outside world. And what does Father Sean do? Not save the world, not send them food or call them and give them prayer on the phone and love and guidance. Sean goes and buys them cases upon cases of Guinness beer. Now that is the priest that I need in my life. The guy that went when everyone was dying to get them Guinness beer and packs of Marlboro Lights. I think that is fantastic. That is one of the great savior stories of the entire COVID-19 experience. That Father Sean went out of his way and he literally told 34C and I, that's my wife, that you were too busy to do the podcast because you had to take caseloads of beer to the priests that had been stranded under quarantine. (laughs) Yeah, there's one seminary here in the archdiocese, and some of the guys had been to a funeral where someone was infected, so out of precaution, the whole seminary was on lockdown. And, of course, last week was St. Patrick's Day and St. Joseph's Day, and I thought, well, I'm going to bring these guys plenty of Guinness. I got them some IPAs and some beers. And I got them some Italian pastries. I went to a fantastic pastry shop, a local one. So I brought them Guinness and pastries. And what did they think of you? You had to be the greatest person ever. I gave them a card. It said, Happy St. Patrick, Happy St. Joseph's Day. May you eat like the Italians and drink like the Irish. (laughs) Sean, explain to the fans, millions of fans want to know what the rules are with the church when it comes to enjoying alcohol because most of the priests that I know are not as cool as you. You have been known to come over to my house and have a nice bottle of red or a sip or two of the Jameson, which is very impressive in my book, and the fans love you for it. What are the rules of the church? Now, I know that you're not allowed, allegedly, to sleep with women, 
So you, I think, convert by going to Jameson and Guinness. If you're not going to be allowed to sleep with women, you need to be able to sleep with a whiskey buzz, which I think is a great idea. It's funny. I became a priest, a police chaplain, and unbeknownst to me, a detective, they come and do like a background check. And I didn't know that they actually came to your house and knocked the door and asked your wife if she knew me, if she could testify to my character before I became the chaplain for the cops. And she told the detective, oh, yeah, we know Father Sean. He's very friendly. In fact, we gave him a bottle of Jameson's for Christmas. She said, oh, I don't mean to say he's alcoholic. I don't mean to. So, I mean, everything in moderation. I mean, sincerely, I only drink whiskey if I'm with my dad. I see him once in a blue moon. We'll have a tincture before we go to bed. It's always great when Sean lies about only drinking whiskey with his father. I always find it interesting when Sean is willing to lie in front of me, but not in front of the Lord. <laughs> and everything in moderation, right? We're not Taliban. We're not puritanical. But I think everyone should know their limit. If I have more than four or five or six beers, you start doing crazy things. If I have more than two or three whiskeys, I'll start dancing on the table. What do the people think that you ride several different Harleys and you're the nice guy that allows other people to park their Harleys in your garage? Now, we will never tell anyone where that garage is so no one robs the Harleys from Father Sean's crib. It's a very elusive place. No one can find us. Stay away from us. And remember to stay away from my sister at all times. But you ride a Harley. What does the diocese think of the Harley-riding heathen priest in northern New Jersey with all of his motorcycle gangs and tattoos and whiskey? I think it's amazing. As a priest, if you ride a motorcycle, you meet a lot of people that you would never meet. People stop and talk to you and then they're shocked when they find out that you're a priest and it's a way to reach out to people and to connect with them because, you know, people see you on the altar with the collar and you're kind of pigeonholed, you're put in the box, yada, yada, yada. But anything that can break down barriers between us, I think is good. Want to light the lamp on DraftKings and FanDuel this NHL DFS season? Then join DailyRoto.com and learn from the best daily fantasy sports players. Get updated fantasy hockey projections for NHL DFS, line combinations, and build stacks for tournaments in the Daily Roto NHL DFS lineup optimizer. If you are playing daily fantasy hockey without using Daily Roto, you are doing it wrong. Enter the promo code ACTION for a 10% discount. That's promo code ACTION for a 10% discount. Hey everyone, it's Michelle Williams, and I love being able to share my story with you on my podcast, Checking In with Michelle Williams, where my guests and I get real as we share the ups and downs of our mental health journeys, and I'd love for you to join me. I'm still on my own journey, but I want to be transparent with you, because as I was posting all the highlights of my life on social media, I was breaking down. And too many people fall victim to the picture-perfect image of the high life, so I created a space to discuss the good and the bad. We can laugh, man. We, we gonna learn. And most of all, I hope to inspire you to go on this journey with me to better mental health. This is gonna be your church, your turn up, and everything in between. So join me on my podcast, Checking In with Michelle Williams, a safe space for every kind of person. Listen to Checking In with Michelle Williams every Tuesday, a part of the Black Effect on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
So, Jean, there's obviously some people, the detractors, let's just call them, the detractors would say, what kind of God would let this Pharrell Demick happen? What kind of God would let all of these people get this virus and get sick and die? What kind of God would let old people not get ventilators and they let the young have them? What kind of God would leave the United States of America with only 6,000 ventilators when they need over 30,000 in New York? What kind of God allows California and New York to have that many cases of the virus? What kind of God would do such a thing? What do you say to these detractors? Well, I don't think they're detractors. It's something which is on everyone's mind. I mean, the truth is that something so small, like a virus, we don't know where it came from, suddenly just changes the whole face of the earth in a few short hours, a few weeks, a few days, and our life is turned upside down. Things that we took for granted are no longer for granted. I mean, the one truth is mathematically certain, the one thing we're all going to experience and the one thing we don't like to think about or talk about is to be a Debbie Downer, to be pessimistic, is one day we'll all end up lying in a little wooden box. We're all going to die. We'll either the coronavirus or we'll get a cancer or old age. This is not to be pessimistic or the boogeyman, turn off the lights, hellfire and brimstone. But it's the truth. And in the face of this, you've seen an immense amount of good. I mean, God loves us, you know. And good can come out of, especially in difficulties, travesties, crises like this one, you see the immense amount of good that's been done. Look, all the baloney, the politics, Republicans killing the Democrats, the Democrats are Republicans. You believe that some people are losing their faith over, you know, when times are good, everyone's a Christian. When it's Christmas Eve, everyone shows up to see Father Sean, 10,000 deep, you can't even get a chair. Old ladies being shunned by good-looking young men that won't get up from their seat to have a spot to listen to Father Sean. But on an average day in June or in October or September or May or August when no one shows up, that the phonies, they don't show up, and now all of a sudden there's a pandemic and their Christianity, they they go from being believers on Christmas Eve, and then all of a sudden there's a travesty or a pandemic, and then they suddenly stop believing. These are the phonies I'm talking about, and they should all be dealt with accordingly. No, not at all. I mean, in fact, you see, a lot of people are like digging deep and looking for something inside of them. You've seen in the churches a lot more people coming. Remember after 9-11, I mean, the churches were packed. I mean, people come looking for an answer. How the hell could this happen? What the heck is going on? I've seen that here. The doors of the church are always open. We can't do mass publicly, but there are people coming to pray. And literally, I have seen you running in your underwear in the driveway with no clothes on, doing some sort of online FaceTime streaming mass underneath the basketball court in the driveway near the tundra. It's like some kind of new wave religion going over here. What's next? You're going to be speaking in tongue. <laughs> We're doing a live stream like a lot of the guys because you can't do mass with the people. So I'm doing a live stream to reach out to people to be able to connect with them in the best way. And you see in the face of this, Look, we're meeting a lot of our neighbors. 
everybody's out walking the dog, walking the kids. Okay, we're socially distancing, six feet, yada, yada, yada. But you're seeing people that you never see before. The amount of people who have stepped up to the plate saying, listen, if there's anyone in need, if there's an elderly person, someone can't get out, they want to buy their medication, I'm willing to go, I can cook food, I can bring it to them. You see, in the face of this, the main thing becomes a main thing. They were all one family. Look, the whole world, we're working together. All the scientists in the labs, all the doctors, all which they're sharing information. Yes. As you see me in the community, you are always catching me walking Boston. And then you will pull up and roll down your window and yell, Scott, I am not seeing you in mass. And if you're not going to be in mass, bad things will follow you. As soon as you say that, my dog cables on my foot. And then I'll have a car drive by and a rock will spit out from the tire and hit me in the side of the head. If I don't go to mass, you never let me live it down. You give me the business. Is that a special tactic you use for all of the heathens in the community that don't go to mass? Not at all. God loves us if we go to church or not, except for you. You better be there every Sunday. If I don't go to Mass, bad luck follows. There's a lot of people where they'll be in an airplane or they'll be at 30,000 feet in the air and they'll ask themselves, I wonder where heaven is. Have you ever wondered exactly where it is, Sean, where all these people are hanging out? You know, I used to remember hearing Billy Graham would talk about the rivers flowing with gold and the wine tasted better and the weather was spectacular. You had a tan year round. You see, during this Pharrell-demic, Sean, I'm losing my tan. All kinds of bad things are happening. Where is this place that everyone goes and ascends into heaven? Where is it? Because if I'm at 35,000 feet and I can't see it, I want to know, is it at 50,000 feet? Do I have to go to the moon to be able to find where this location is with the gold flowing rivers? Heaven and hell begin on earth, and we choose. We can experience heaven here, or we can experience hell. And what we choose accompanies us into the next life. Heaven is an experience of communion, of fraternity, of forgiveness, of charity. Hell is to always see the glass of water half empty, to be pissed off, to be angry, to be grumbling, to be murmuring, to be... It's an ACDC song, Sean. Hell ain't a bad place to be. It sounds like a crappy place to be to me, Sean. How do I avoid, with my many indiscretions, going to hell? Just knowing that God loves us the way that we are. He loves us. He never judges us. And this love, we're connected with us. Then we can begin to love other people. They can be a pain in the ass. They can push our buttons. You mean like the grumpy old man that lives next door to you that doesn't want my dog near his yard? I don't like anyone that doesn't let my dog be naturally free to take a leak in his front yard. When you yell at me because my dog wants to smell your light pole or your bushes... Stay out of my way. But if you want to be mean and grumpy, then I think he deserves a shot at having a place in hell. We had a storm, might have been sandy, and all the trees came down and one broke the fence and the neighbor came over all angry and pissed off. And he said to one of the priests who was living here, Father Bob, God rest him, he's passed away. He said, you broke my fence, you owe me money. And Father Bob said to him, you know, bad fences make good neighbors. That's a beautiful thing, come to think of it. So what do you think is going to happen, Sean? How long do you think we're going to be holed up and locked in our homes with people scrambling to survive the trauma that's going on? When will the doors to our great parish open again and we start preparing for the summer carnival? 
who knows? I mean, they're looking at weeks or months. So, I mean, we're all praying it ends sooner rather than later. I mean, the doors of the church are always open. And with all of this nightmare going on, there's always good that happens. You know, there's always good. We're beginning to communicate and value and appreciate things that we always take for granted. What happens to the church when the money stops flowing? Let's get down to the real business at hand. Every Sunday, it's always important that people drop money, their tithings, into the basket. Sometimes, here's a secret I'll tell you about. When I walk in and I see Father Sofridis, who I love dearly, great man, it's weird. Whenever I see him in the driveway, I understand everything he says to me. But when he's in the church, he seems to talk faster. And then you can't understand a word he says. So I know a lot of people will see him and they won't go. I, on the other hand, see him and I find it an opportunity to run to the basket and drop my money in there and then get the hell out of there as quick as possible. The people that drop, drive by drop of the money and run, they're better than the people that see him and turn around and run. What do you do when the money stops flowing and people can't come in to the church and drop in their 10%? This is a problem for the church. Don't tell me it isn't. We try, I try, not to speak about money ever in the church because money's not the most important thing. We're yes, not, it is. Where the love of God, the sacraments are free. Now, at the same time, people come on Sunday, there's a collection, yada, yada, yada. And we're going to go online giving. The Archdiocese is doing an online giving. You can support your parish so that we can keep the lights on. I want to pay the staff and also to reach out to families in need. There are a couple of families already popped up on the radar. They've lost work. They're kind of living under the table. You know, the service industry, immigrants. And I went to visit a mom this week. Remember when you had the people here that their house had burned down and they were living here for like a month or something. And then they had a bunch of kids. And then didn't I give them a ton of clothes and shoes? That was the most giving you've ever seen me do, Sean. As you know, I'm a fairly selfish soul. <laughs> That's what... The church is all about. And we are the church, right? We're the body of Christ. It's not a building. It's not a place. We are the church. And stuff like this happens like that family, 14 kids, uh, the house burnt down. Thank God none of them were hurt. Everyone stepped up to the plate. We moved out of the rectory one night, let them all sleep here. Then we set them up in the classrooms. And everyone like you guys step up to the plate. They had more basketball shoes than they can shake a stick at. They had better clothes. They had food. They had. That's what it's all about. So that's what the money is for. That's what it should be going to help those who are in need. Let me ask you lastly, what happened when Pharrell taught Sunday school? This was always one of our favorite stories ever, where I came down and I was the Sunday school teacher. In other words, AKA preacher. Preacher Pharrell came down with all the little kitties. And when Sean walked in the room, he saw happiness, joyful kids screaming, singing, dancing on top of tables, having a blast, playing Nerf basketball, praising each other, giving each other confidence. And the love was flowing. I mean, it was flowing like toilet paper in the men's header. I had it all going. But then some wicked witch came in and saw everyone being so wonderfully happy and it threw her for a loop. She got very angry and she did not want me to be the Sunday school teacher and she interfered with the process. She ended up going to hell. I ended up not being the Sunday school teacher anymore and that is a problem. What happened? <laughs> I was over your house one day and you said to me why don't we have children's liturgy of the word sunday school for kids i said you know why because no one's volunteered to do it why don't you do it 
And you said, what, you let me do that? I said, absolutely. So we started one Sunday morning. The church is packed. I invite all the kids to come up to the altar. You're going to have children's liturgy of the word with your wonderful catechist, Mr. Scott. And Scott comes to the front. I give him the Bible and he processes out with his kids. And he was telling the kids, kids, the devil sucks. We love Jesus. Jesus is the best. We hate the devil. And all the kids were so happy. And then these moms, they were having a fit. Oh, my God. This heathen Scott is teaching our kids. With his scary voice. With his scary voice. You see the women in the neighborhood yelling, Father Sean, Pharrell, you guys are the best. But then the women down at the church get all flustered when they hear my voice. And they think their children are being taught by the devil. It's their loss. Listen. This is still going to go on, and you're going to be the catechist next time. When the pandemic is over, Scott, you're back on deck with the kids. I'm coming back for round two with the kids. Now, Sean, you've done a great job with the church and being my neighbor and being my friend. Can you believe this career you've had from the day you were talking to the homeless kids in Dublin to where you are today, living in Jersey? You could have been anywhere. You could have been in Italy. You could have been in Africa. You could have been in Asia. You could have been anywhere. You could have been in Bora Bora. You could have been in South Africa. You could have been in England. You could have been anywhere but you ended up in jersey and you've been here forever and you seem to be the nicest happiest person i've ever met who in their right mind is ever happy in jersey sean is but you have found a church and a parish and a peoples around here that love and adore you and if you ever leave we're gonna have you killed God forbid, I want to get out of the way. I got to get on my knees every time I get up in the pulpit and say, what the hell am I going to say to these people? Who the hell am I to speak to them? These people are more educated than me, but we're all poor instruments, right? If so long as Jesus shows up, God shows up, we're in good shape. That's wonderful. All right, one last thing, Sean. I've always told you I have a problem with you telling me 3,000-year-old stories. I don't want to hear about Jesus walking with a giant salmon through the desert with no shoes on and people having one piece of bread to share amongst 50,000 in a large gathering like Coachella Music Festival, and they have just the one piece of fish and the one piece of bread, and somehow Jesus turns it into the biggest Thanksgiving dinner ever. Why don't we just talk about now instead of 3,000-year-old stories? And you always tell me, Scott, shut your face. You have no say in this. You will never change the way we do things in the Catholic Church with your demonic ideas. That's right. Just shut up and put your money in the basket. No, I never say that to you because the stories of the gospel, they're relevant. They speak to us today. They're always new. They're always fresh. And Jesus, no, they're not. Jesus with the salmon in the gospel. I don't know that one. But the, the gospel speaks to us. The word of God is like a lamp for our steps. What is the difference between a piece of salmon or a piece of fish? Well, probably none. You know, Jesus was called ictus, the fish, which means he comes out of the depth of the sea, death. And he gives life. He becomes food for all. you believe the alcoholics can get their alcoholism back by drinking the blood of Christ? As you know, I don't drink the blood of Christ because I used to drink so much booze, Sean. And when I quit, when I had kids, I don't drink the booze anymore. Thus, I don't drink the wine, which is a.k.a. blood of Christ. Do you think the people that drink that shot of the blood of Christ every week could start drinking again? Yeah, there's a lot of brothers and sisters, you know, suffering with disease and you got to 
tip your hat to them. God bless them. You know, they're helping how I feel for them now with this. I hope they can make their AA meetings, you know. And for them, obviously, not to drink from the chalice, you know, because anything anything they can do to stay away from it, I really pray for them. Actually, Kathy O says, you're all a bunch of wussies. Pass me my liter of wine and shut your face. I'll say, I don't drink anymore. She says, you're a wussy. Get out of my way. Or why are you drinking so much, Kathy? Make me another Jameson and Ginger, you wussy, and bring me the Lay's potato chips. Well, I got to keep her away from the sacristy, and I won't show her where the wine is kept in the fridge. Don't let her on your Harley. (laughs) I'm going to throw her on the back. I think she'd love it. All right. Hey, Sean, it's great having you on the Pharrell and a Bench podcast. You did a terrific job. This is going to be a hit. Scott, you're the best. Greetings to all your listeners. Love and peace to everyone. Don't panic. Don't fear. God brings good out of absolutely everything. There he is. Father Sean, a leader of men and the leader of my parish and a fine neighbor. I live right next door to him. And remember, stay away from us. It's the Pharrell and a Bench podcast. Shake out who. Want to be the next Daily Fantasy Millionaire? Dunk on your NBA DFS competition with DailyRoto.com and dominate on FanDuel and DraftKings this season. Compete with the pros with DailyRoto.com, Optimizer, and the most accurate projections in NBA DFS, plus lineup alerts, breaking news, late swap support, and much more. Save 10% on winning NBA DFS advice with promo code DUNK. Visit DailyRoto.com backslash DUNK to learn more. Hey everyone, it's Michelle Williams, and I love being able to share my story with you on my podcast, Checking In with Michelle Williams, where my guests and I, we get real as we share the ups and downs of our mental health journeys, and I'd love for you to join me. Hey, it's going to be your church and your turn up. So listen to Checking In with Michelle Williams every Tuesday, a part of the Black Effect on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.